Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from across Ukraine, talk Ukrainian politics with Professor Olga Onich, and, continuing our week of stories, focusing on the abduction of Ukrainian children, I interview our Russia correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, on Russia's Ombudswoman for Children's Rights, Maria Lvova-Belova. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 19th of July, one year and 145 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, and Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Manchester and author of The Zelensky Effect, Olga Onich. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, folks. Quite a lot to get through today, so I'll rattle them off. So I think the kind of big and exciting news in Russian-occupied Crimea, a mysterious fire broke out at a, mis- at a military training facility. It's believed to be one of uh, Moscow's largest ammunition dumps on the peninsula, and it's, it's basically right in sort of the southeastern corner, so it's well out of range of any of the known weapons that Ukraine operates, like the Storm Shadow or the High Mars. Um, so there's a lot of mystery around it. Um, the Moscow-backed head of Crimea's government first warned that the fire had broken out um, in the early hours of the morning, um, and it basically took local authorities and firefighters about four hours to get the fire um, under control. Uh, temporary shelters have been set up as residents from four local villages were evacuated. So 2,000 residents were evacuated in total from the area. And a a highway which links the Kirsch ports, where the Kirsch bridge that connects mainland Russia to occupied Crimea and Sevastopol was also closed. So I guess likely to suggest that that is a logistical hub that Russia uses to um, basically supply its Black Sea fleet, so if that is closed, that's probably good news. There were no reported casualties as a result of the fire in the uh, Kirovsky district. I think the other thing that's uh, probably important to say is Russia didn't say what was being stored there. The ammunition dump is a suggestion by analysts and watchers of Ukraine and Russia. Again, Ukraine, as they often do when it comes to strikes deep behind enemy lines, especially those in Crimea, they didn't really offer any real insight into it. There was a, a statement by Budinov, the head of the head of um, 
Ukraine's military intelligence. And he was reported as saying in this statement, a successful operation was conducted on occupied Crimea. The enemy conceals the extent of the damage and the number of losses in manpower. But to caveat that, Ukrainian officials have since come out and denied taking credit for the fire that consumed the ammunition depot and basically forced mass evacuations. A representative for the Defence Ministry told the Kyiv Post there was no such statement made. So um, is it kind of operational secrecy? Is it the fact that Budinov is this man of mystery and he likes goading the Russians? He, he, wants, he wants his op- Russian opposite numbers to know that he can reach them and has sort of this wider wider network of ability to attack deep, deep, deep behind enemy lines, whether it be in Moscow or deep in occupied Crimea. Um, And then moving on, for a second night in a row, Russia has attacked the Black Sea port city of Odessa and the surrounding regions. I think it's fair to say the strikes appear to be a revenge attack for the apparent strike on the Kerch Bridge, which I mentioned earlier, connecting Russia to occupied Crimea. Officials reported a series of loud explosions as Iranian-made drones or loitering munitions to some of the experts that listen to us, and missiles were fired at Odessa. Serhi Bratchuk, a spokesman for the local military administration, described it as a hellish night. In the city of Odessa, one intercepted missile triggered a blast wave that damaged several buildings and injured civilians, local officials reported. Some of the damaged infrastructure was at the local grain and oil terminal at the city's port. It included storage tanks and loading equipment. A tobacco warehouse and fireworks factory were also hit. Uh, Local officials said 10 people needed medical assistance after the strikes, including a nine-year-old boy. Again, while I think it's probably safest to say that the long-range bombardments against the Odessa region two nights in a row are a reprisal, as promised by Vladimir Putin, for the explosion on the Kerch Bridge. There's also a wider significance in this. As I mentioned on yesterday's pod, um, Odessa is being targeted at a time that Russia has walked away from the Black Sea grain deal. And I think uh, advisors to Zelensky have made this clear that they believe that Russia is now it's blocking safe passage for Ukrainian grain shipments out of the Black Sea. It now believes that Russia is intending to destroy Ukraine's kind of trade in grains in that direction. Mikhailo Podolak, an advisor to President Zelensky, said Russia was intentionally trying to target grain terminals and other port facilities to destroy the possibility of shipping Ukrainian grain. Andrei Yermak, who's Zelensky's chief of staff, said, and I quote, the Russian terror of Odessa proves once again that they need hunger and problems in countries of the global south. Uh, so that's Africa, South America, and say poorer regions that often benefit from Ukrainian grain shipments. And I continue with Andrei Yermak's quote, They want to create a refugee crisis for the West. Everything is done in order to weaken allies and politically intervene in the internal affairs of these countries. So Western leaders, and I would say European and sort of American leaders, have often accused Vladimir Putin of depriving millions of access to grain um, by withdrawing from the Black Sea fleet, uh, Black Sea grain deal, sorry, and stopping Ukraine from shipping its grain in that direction. This is one of the areas, and I won't get too much into the geopolitics of it, where Western leaders, the Europeans and the Americans, have really tried to combat the narrative on this one. Because at times, African leaders have urged Europeans to basically lift sanctions on Russia, 
in exchange for allowing this grain to be released out of the Black Sea. And it's, it's really important that basically the message that Russia is pushing is that sanctions are bad, sanctions are the reason why there's going to be grain shortages where actually the West is pushing the narrative that no, look, Russia is blocking the grain shipments. It's not the fault of sanctions. And this is a real kind of tussle that they're having in convincing the global South African countries to believe the narrative of the West rather than of Russia. And then to continue, so officials said considerable damage was done to a grain terminal in the, and I, excuse me for the pronunciation, Chornomorsk port in the Odessa region by the Russian airstrikes. Uh, Ukraine's agricultural ministry ministry said and it claimed that 60,000 tons of grain which were ready to be shipped and loaded had been destroyed and the the bombardments weren't just in the Odessa region while they were focused on that region probably there was in total at least 30 cruise missiles and 32 drones were fired at various targets across Ukraine overnight Ukraine's air force said its air defenses had managed to intercept 14 of those missiles and 23 of those drones so we can paint a picture of how Russia is probably targeting areas which aren't as well protected by the Western air defences systems that are being catapulted, uh, parachuted into Ukraine. And they probably don't, have probably done some significant damage, as we've heard, 60,000 tonnes of grain have been destroyed. And then there's a series of other shelling attacks. Uh, Russia was shelling in the Donetsk region, where 10 people were wounded across the region in various attacks. Uh, in Mykolaiv, there were two more people injured although the city itself, so this was Mykolaiv region, was spared from any repeat of Monday night's missile attacks. The local defence force said on Telegram that an attack on the settlement of Koblivska had destroyed recreational infrastructure facilities on the coast. So we can paint a picture and look at Russia is mainly targeting sort of areas on Ukraine's southern coast. And the Ukraine's Air Force reported that most of the missiles and drones were fired from the Black Sea region. And then on to the UK defence intelligence briefing put out on Twitter every morning and it said Moscow faces a dilemma over which of its troops will be used to reinforce areas after Ukraine successfully managed to capture some land on the Dnipro River. It said in its update that Ukraine had destroyed Russian boats as it fought for islands on the Dnipro Delta as well as opening up a small bridgehead close to the destroyed Antonovsky Bridge. And basically what it's suggesting is, the MOD is suggesting that, look, Russia's forces are mainly concentrated elsewhere. So if Ukraine is making gains and successes in one area, it's going to make decision makers in Moscow or whoever is making the decisions in Ukraine think about where do we put our troops? Do we potentially weaken our defences in Zaporizhia or Donetsk in favour of bolstering the defences in Kherson, which essentially is a straight run to Crimea, which they are, the Russians are probably most likely willing to defend. And then um, yesterday, I literally, it was a very brief nugget of insight that I, that I offered, but I want to flesh it out after our correspondent James Kilner wrote a piece on it. And, and he wrote, Russia is building a force of 100,000 soldiers to attack the northern sector of the front line as Ukrainians basically admit their counteroffensive is stalling elsewhere. So they believe, the Ukrainians believe that Russia is amassing a force of around 100,000 men and artillery and tanks alongside that around Kupiansk. That's near Kharkiv in the north 
east of Ukraine. It was a town that was recaptured by Ukraine as part of the September counteroffensive um, and has been held since, but it has been one of these real hot spots. When I was out in the Kharkiv region last time I was out, people would often speak about Crimea and Kupiansk being the hardest of the fighting that they faced in the Kharkiv region, even though they would say, look, it is not as hard as what our troops are going through in Zaporizhia or elsewhere, in Bakhmut, etc., etc. So Hannah Mailer, who's Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister, but also the, the spokeswoman for that ministry, said there could be ex- Kupiansk attack may be a diversionary tactic used to lift pressure on other sectors. So much like the UK's defence intelligence briefing was saying that Ukraine could be pulling Russian resources elsewhere, is this what the Russians are trying to do by pulling Russia, uh, Ukrainian resources away from Bakhmut, away from the other fronts towards Top, Tokmak in Zaporizhia or Vilkanevsilka in in southern Donetsk? That's, that's a question that, that's basically on the table. And Hannah Mailer said, as soon as we seize the operational initiative and start moving forward, the enemy immediately activates in other directions to distract and drag in our forces. So I think that's clear that Ukraine, what Ukraine is saying is, look, it's probably a danger, but we think it is a, a Russian tactic to take away from what we are doing on our own counteroffensive. And I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much for giving us the rundown there, Joe, on everything happening in Ukraine. That was very comprehensive. Thank you, Joe. Francis, it's great to have you back. You've been looking at some of the diplomatic and political updates over the last few days. What have you got for us? Well, thanks, David. It's good to be back. It has been an eventful few days in the political sphere, especially regarding the grain deal, which Joe just referenced, but which I'll dive deeper into in a moment. But given the military context and increased murmurings around the slow progress of the counteroffensive, I'm actually going to start with the remarks made by the chief of the Secret Intelligence Service, more commonly known as MI6. So Sir Richard Moore has given a rare speech in Prague this morning, timed to coincide with the anniversary of the ill-fated Prague Spring of 1968, which, just for a bit of context, is when Russia invaded Czechoslovakia after a spell of liberalisation, which Moscow interpreted as a threat to its control over the country. Now, Sir Richard has sought really to contextualise the war in Ukraine in a broader sense than just the immediate. It's also his only his second speech since taking charge of the Secret Service in 2020. And due to their scarcity, they're always timed to coincide with a significant moment geopolitically and are worth listening to. Now, the top line is an appeal to Russians who are disgusted by what has happened in Ukraine. He says, and I quote, There were many Russians in 1968 who saw the moral travesty of what was being done here in Prague. They had no wish to be on the wrong side of history, and the bravest of them acted on their convictions by throwing in their lot with us as partners for freedom. There are many Russians today who are silently appalled by the sight of their armed forces pulverising Ukrainian cities, expelling innocent families from their homes and kidnapping thousands of children. They are watching in horror as their soldiers ravage a kindred country. They know in their hearts that Putin's case for attacking a fellow Slavic nation is fraudulent, a miasma of lies and fantasy. As they witness the venality, infighting and sheer callousness and incompetence of their leaders, many Russians are wrestling with the same dilemmas and the same tugs of conscience as their predecessors did in 1968. I invite them to do what others have already done this past 18 months and join hands with us. Our door is always open. My service lives by the principle that our loyalty to agents is lifelong 
and our gratitude eternal. Now, we've mentioned on the podcast in the past the extraordinary story of Oleg Gordievsky, the former KGB bureau chief who became a double agent for MI6 during the Cold War. The turning point for him was the Soviet crushing of the Prague Spring. And it was then that he reached out to the intelligence services in Britain. So Sir Richard has historical examples to back up what he's saying here. I don't believe this is just an overture to undermine Russia's narrative. I think there is a genuine cause here that he is appealing to amongst a certain group of influential Russians. Gordievsky was an absolutely vital asset, not least for showing how paranoid the USSR was in the 1980s when they genuinely believed the West was planning to launch a preemptive strike. And he also provided valuable information on Gorbachev. But for more on that, I'd highly recommend Ben McIntyre's book, The Spy and the Traitor, which is an absolute masterpiece of nonfiction. And it was lauded, I think, even by John le Carre, which speaks volumes. But furthermore, in the speech, Sir Richard emphasised his view that there appears, appears now to be little prospect of Russian forces regaining momentum. He adds that in the last month, Ukraine has liberated more territory than Russia captured in the last year. At this moment in the conflict, it's even more vital for Ukraine's friends to press on and sustain their support so that Ukrainian valour on the battlefield continues to find its counterpart in the enduring will of allied countries to arm, provision and train them for as long as it takes, to quote the emphatic communique of the NATO summit in Vilnius. Now, it's worth remembering when the, when one hears claims that the Russian army is regrouping and supposedly preparing for mass offensives, that it is the view and has consistently been the view for the, of the intelligence services for some time that the Russian army is not in a fit state to really launch offensives that are perhaps on the scale of the one that Ukraine has managed to launch in the last few months. Now, another interesting part of the speech is his analysis of African nations. He says how in some nations burdened by civil war, poverty and a weak state, Russia has offered a 21st century version of a Faustian pact. The essential bargain is that Wagner mercenaries will keep the government of that African country in power, provided it signs over to Russia or to Russian individuals privileged rights to its people's mineral wealth. But now they've had to watch those very mercenaries who they're supposed to trust turning against their ultimate patron and bearing down on Moscow. If Russian mercenaries can betray Putin, who else might they betray? If they can advance on Moscow, what other capitals might they threaten? The truth is that Russia has no interest in peace or stability in African nations. On the contrary, its strategy for influence requires active conflicts and weak states, which the Kremlin views as targets to be controlled and exploited in a new Russian imperialism. Interesting. And I think the fact that he is saying this is not only to raise awareness of that fact, but is actually a pitch as well to Africa, who, of course, will be many of its nations watching this statement. He concludes by stressing the dangers of AI and how Russia is not the single most important strategic focus of the secret intelligence service. He says, we must now devote more resources to China than anywhere else, reflecting China's increasing global significance. Before going on to stress the numerous hostile activities of the Chinese state, something, of course, that increased concern here in Britain after the launch of a report last week, which argued the UK response to Chinese spying was completely inadequate. So an interesting speech all round, David. In the Q&A afterwards, he also offered some revealing snippets. He spoke of the humiliating deal between Putin and Prigozhin that Putin cut to save his skin. That's a quote from him. Prigozhin started off as a traitor at breakfast. He was pardoned by supper. And a few days later, he was invited for tea. 
quite a memorable way of putting it. He also stressed that no one wants an unstable Russia. No one wants an unstable nuclear state. A common feeling amongst Western leaders and diplomats, though, of course, the implications of that view can be problematic regarding Putin's future, with many then arguing that he should remain in power, but weakened, as we've talked about in the past. Anyway, this was another speech where the medium was the message, its location and timing arguably just as important as the content. So I imagine there will be some interesting reaction to it over the coming days. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Just staying with you before we go to our guest, Olga. Francis, you've been looking at the grain deal for many months now. We've reported on it um, day in, day out. We've already reported this week on its apparent collapse. What's the latest on that? What are your thoughts on it? Yes, well, after bluffing for months, the Russians have seemingly decided to play their hand, though the truth is almost certainly more complicated. The reaction to the news has been greeted with incredulity from the international community. We were speaking about Africa a moment ago. Kenya's government has called it a stab in the back for drought hit countries, a phrase which, of course, we've heard a lot recently. The country belongs to a region experiencing one of the worst droughts in decades. More than 50 million people across Somalia, Kenya, Ethiopia and South Sudan are in need of food aid because of successive years of failed rains. I spoke last week about the UN report into hunger, which just shows how severe the international climate is on these matters. So the grain deal really, really matters to African nations, the global south more broadly, as Joe said, and of course to Western countries too, which will be impacted by this at a time of very high inflation in many Western economies. Now, Russia has issued an ultimatum on the deal. It says it will refuse to restart talks on the initiative unless the UN concedes to its demands by October. But Turkish President Erdogan has told reporters he believes that Putin wants to continue the agreement and they will discuss the renewal of the deal when they meet in person next month. The grain deal has had several obvious benefits for Moscow. It's kept them dealing with top diplomats at a time when there was a threat they would be cut off completely. Plus, it allowed them to boost their leverage over African nations by claiming they were doing it for them. And to Joe's point, it's been used to try and undermine this argument about sanctions being a positive thing at a time when many Western nations have tried to encourage sanctions being put on Russia. So why change the strategy now? Well, I would first ask whether they really do intend to leave the deal long term. It seems more likely they're seeming to seeking to utilise some one of their international assets by showing that they are serious and that thereby that will have implications on other things that they say regarding perhaps nuclear weapons, regarding new offensives, etc. It may even be a part of a plan to have it on the table as part of future long term negotiations with Ukraine. Ukraine, as Joe says, has accused Russia of an even more sinister motive of forcing starvation and trying to overwhelm the West with refugees. It's possible uh, and it may well be a factor. My own view is that it's also closely tied with Erdogan's decision to make Sweden join NATO. He brokered the grain deal working with the UN and Russia, and it's embarrassing for him and a punishment from a sometime ally. Putin also knows this will drive a wedge between NATO countries after the comparative unity of Vilnius. Already, five Eastern European countries will ask the EU to extend a ban on Ukrainian grain exports. That's according to Hungary's farming minister today for fear of the economic consequences if they are permitted. 
So it now has arguably more benefits for Russia than disadvantages at this vulnerable geopolitical moment, which is why they may have made, made this calculation now and pulled the trigger now. But it may be that longer term, it falls back more into the advantageous camp. And in which case, we may well see a reversion to what we've seen in recent months in terms of the arrangement in place. So it's a murky picture, though I expect it will become even murkier before we get clarity. Well, thank you very much. Francis, for that. It's a pleasure to welcome our guest back on the podcast, Olga Onich. Olga, last time uh, you were with us, you spoke about your new book, The Zelensky Effect. Um, It's a fantastic book. I'd recommend all of our listeners uh, do try and get it and read it. It's brilliant to welcome you back. Could we start with Zelensky then? You've been tracking Ukrainian opinion about Zelensky and his administration since the start of the full-scale invasion and before. What's the latest there? Could you take us into the the nuances as you see them of, of Ukrainian polling? Yeah, hello. Thank you for having me again. Well, we have. We have certainly bring in the nerds, right, with the numbers. That's my job here today to tell you all about the support ratings for Zelensky. And it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Very little has changed. In fact, there is slightly more even support when you ask people if the elections were held this week, Sunday, who would you vote for? We're talking about 76 plus percent of Ukrainian citizens would vote for Zelensky. And quite stably over time, Poroshenko vote would be the former president would be just around four or five percent. Nobody else comes close to this in these sorts of open questions, right? In in the other option, people can list a whole bunch of other individuals, Zaluzhny, Pratula. None of these people would get over uh, about 5% uh, of the vote, right? Or less they would get. In fact, something that our UK friends might be interested in, Boris Johnson receives about 0 of respondents suggesting that they would vote for him for president. So just to give you an idea that really nobody else except for Zelensky stands a chance should an election be held. What we do, though, David, as you know, we do a lot of experimental survey items. And what that means is we uh, use a variety of different tools to ask people not straight up, who would you vote for this uh, on this, should the elections be held this Sunday, but in a variety of other ways to really gauge their support for Zelensky. And we do know that there is a public-private difference here. We do know that some people in that open question will say that they will vote for Zelensky, but really when they're asked in an experimental fashion, such as a list experiment, they only, about a quarter of them actually would not vote for Zelensky. That being said, Zelensky's support in an election, should it be held, is about 55 to 60 percent, even when we take that difference of that private versus public disclosure. So Zelensky's support is really stable if, I mean, certainly strongly rooted and not going anywhere anytime soon. We've spoken quite a few times in the past few months on this podcast about the idea that maybe domestic politics is is coming back in Ukraine, that 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 sort of, you know, the, the players and the politicians are starting to look to their domestic campaigns, look to their base, and are starting to think about the future politically for them. What do you make of that? What do you see when you look back at Ukraine and its, and its domestic politics? Right, That that's quite the slogan that's being used by a lot of people that are I think analysts and more outside of Ukraine, 
The reality is an opposition force is in Ukraine. They've started to use that statement quite often also. The reality is politics has never left in Ukraine. There was that very short period of time following February 24th and Russia's all-out invasion that we really had radar silence from the opposition. Very quickly thereafter, by, by the summer of last year, we already had open criticism of both activist organizations, opposition groups, different parliamentary blocs, criticizing actions, laws, criticizing the media control that the, the government continues to have, and as well as other events that occurred. So I don't think politics has only come back more recently. What we do know is that because there was this element, and there even continues to be, this element of uncertainty could an election happen next year, as it should be according to the schedule, but of course cannot according to law under martial law, that uncertainty whether or not there could be an election cycle does change the way various opposition candidates start speaking publicly, the sorts of posts they start making on social media, the kinds of actions they participate in, because they are trying to rally up their particular constituencies and bases. It's very tricky for them, not least, for instance, for former President Petro Poroshenko, because a lot of the policy areas that were previously their domain are now the domain also of Zelensky and his party. Right. So things around the church, things around language, things around the war uh, and the army and support for the army are very much part of Zelensky's policy area as well. So you'll see that over the last six months or so, various political opposition groups and specifically politicians who do still have an eye on the presidency. They are trying to figure out where exactly in the policy sphere can they develop their domain. And it's proving to be really difficult. The worry here is, of course, that they might resort to some sort of identity politics, some exclusionary identity politics, or ramp up us versus them polarizing rhetoric, which would be, of course, not not, not good in any way. It could be even devastating for Ukraine. And Russian disinformation campaigns have fully tried to manipulate that. You've mentioned Olga the the sort of opposition politicians a few times, and and of course we you know I think I think people from outside of Ukraine have, have heard of Petro Poroshenko. Could you introduce us to some of the other characters that you think we should be aware of, and and their, and their movements? You know, it's it's really tricky to identify who else would be a reasonable candidate to look out for. Just looking at the again the, the nerd by numbers, which is a way to I guess describe me. There's no one else that comes up immediately as an obvious follow-up to Poroshenko. There are a few candidates that did obviously run in past elections, including Vakarchuk, uh, who is not only a politician and activist, but also a musician. It's unlikely that, well, first of all, he wouldn't stand a chance in a national election, and it's unlikely that he would run. He did not run, in fact, in 2019, but he was always considered a possible candidate. Other folks are talking about people actually not from without the Zelensky government, but from within. So individuals such as Kuleba, Dmitry Kuleba, are being thrown around as possible candidates. Again, 
if you look at this by numbers and you're 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 looking at this as a political consultant, you wouldn't see that this that Kuleba could have a national appeal. Similarly, there is a few murmurs here and there about generals entering the race as a person who studies democratization and democracy. Uh, that's not something that I would see as a positive development, but nonetheless, some people might indeed see it that way, specifically Zaluzhny. Again, doesn't receive the national support uh, across different electoral cleavages that would make him a strong candidate and I think would make him a very complicated candidate. The person who comes up after Poroshenko in our polling we ask also questions among the different political candidates or politicians who would be better able to cope with the task of rebuilding Ukraine. There, Zelensky gets about 59-60%. So people, although they would vote for him at much higher rates, about 60% of the Ukrainian population thinks Zelensky would be better at rebuilding Ukraine. Still, he is he gets the highest rating here. Poroshenko comes second, and Groisman comes in third. And obviously, Groisman is a former prime minister. Other individuals, like former prime minister Yatsenyuk, obviously Yulia Tymoshenko and others, are always mentioned, but again, unlikely to get a national appeal. Um, a couple more questions from me, but I know Joe and Francis want to jump in as well, if that's all right. You mentioned earlier the decision not to hold elections, as you said, constitutionally, you know, it's martial law at the moment. What was the impact of that? How did that, how did that go down amongst, amongst Ukrainians? So here are two things. It's not a decision. It is the law. So when Zelensky was interviewed, which is the, I believe the BBC interview is the one that everyone refers to, he just said, under martial law, elections can't happen, right? And that, that is the law. So either the law would have to be changed, martial law would have to be temporarily paused if the war has not stopped, or there has to be peace and the war has to be over. So it's not so much a decision, it's the law. And he is, of course, the guarantor of the Ukrainian constitution, so he cannot make a statement otherwise. That doesn't mean there isn't uncertainty over whether or not an election could possibly occur, right? As a person who, again, studies democracy and democratization, having an election in an uncertain context, even if the war has just ended, if, if we are, and I pray for this to happen, if, if, if Ukraine wins the war by February of next year, and it is possible to have a post-war election in March, April, May, and so forth, that's still a really uncertain context initially. So the stability of the country, the preparation for an election would take time, I would think. And I hope that the political opposition sees it in that way as well. It remains to be seen, to be perfectly honest, how ordinary citizens and the political opposition will look at this moment. Uh, maybe some think that there should be an election anyway, uh, even if they would like to see Zelensky continue the presidency. Uh, maybe some see this as a, a, an element that they can use against Zelensky, that he didn't try very hard to bring the will of the people, which he can't do legally under the constitution. So I think most people, most Ukrainians would see this as quite understandable. You shouldn't have an election during war. You cannot have an election during war, not only because of the law, but quite frankly, you cannot have an election when people cannot make their way to vote. 
So there was a there was some people were suggesting that there could be e-voting. This is really not something that can happen in a wartime context when bombs are falling every night on Odessa, Lviv, Kiev, Dnipro, and elsewhere. Right? This is just not the context you can have an election with, and I think ordinary citizens are cognizant of that. You've written recently about. Ukraine post-war. Could you just flesh out for us what you see the biggest challenges for for the country? Well, the challenges are multifold. And actually, what we wrote in that foreign affairs piece is it's the last chapter of our book. And it always, I find it always very interesting that people that read certainly deeply the first few chapters, they think we have a very optimistic and positive outlook, especially on Zelensky, which we think we're much more measured than other people say. But that last chapter is actually considering the possibilities of the problems of future democracy in Ukraine. And again, this is something that Henry and I study in many different contexts, but certainly in Ukraine, and something we care a great deal about. We don't only simply care about stability. We care about meaningful, deeply rooted, consolidated democracy, which we think Ukraine is on on path to and has been in the last few years, increasingly so. But in a post-war context, many different things can happen. For instance, an election, specifically a presidential election, is by its nature, especially if it results in a runoff, polarizing. Depending on the decisions a presidential candidate makes in their rhetoric, they can deeply polarize a society. They can polarize society around different types of identity politics. They can present an exclusive idea of what it means to be a Ukrainian citizen. They might propose restrictive laws that could be seen as repressive to minority groups. That would obviously not be a positive development. This idea that ethno-linguistic nationalism can take root and can become the tool through which some political opponents uh, might want to make their use to make their way to the presidency or to a majority in the in the parliament in the rada again that would we we would look at that as a problematic development a certainly a negative development if you're thinking about this normatively other issues are about massive popularity of politicians zelensky's popularity can become an issue in if he doesn't if he if he decides that that popularity means he can do whatever he wants and that the will of the people is with him no matter what it can be both damaging to uh, what we would hope would be a lively political competition amongst different voices in Ukraine amongst different policy propositions but also in the fact that he might miscalculate not least because all of our data show that Ukrainians are even more entrenched in not wanting any kind of negotiated peace deal, right? They they do not want to give up any territory whatsoever. That number has gone up over the last year. I think the Ukrainian ordinary citizens are both Zelensky's secret weapon, as it were. They are attached to the civic nation, to the state, willing to go until the end and fight. But they're also his Achilles heel. If he does not follow their will, I think he will be, in a sense, a victim of their actions and their withdrawal of support. A final thing that worries me 
in the future. And that doesn't, and of course, this is a, a, I think, it's a worry that comes out of a positive. The war ends, but the rebuilding of Ukraine has to begin. The amount of different things that will have to happen, the different, the reconstruction of so many industries, of the healthcare system, of education, simply demining. These are colossal, colossal things that will have to happen. And it will be extremely difficult for any political leader or any political party to decide on the sequencing of these reforms, reconstruction, foci. And it also will be very difficult to decide where and how the money will be spent, even if that money is coming from allies around the globe that will help Ukraine in its reform and rebuilding going forward. It's a massive job and there will be a temptation by some political candidates, some politicians to say that they can do this simply quickly and they will not be able to do it in that way. That's for certain. What that will do to the population Will the population expect too much? Those things are also possible spaces for polarization, for discontent, and other things to happen internally in Ukrainian politics. But of course, winning the war is above all the most important thing, something that everyone is committed to in Ukraine. And at at least for now, politicians continue, even if politics is back, politicians continue to agree across the whole political spectrum that this is a priority above everything. Hi, Olga. So so good to have you back on the podcast. Um, you already touched on this, but I'm very interested in this theme of post-war reconstruction and some of the polling regarding Zelensky's popularity as a post-war leader. We hear a lot of comparisons with between Zelensky and Churchill. But what people tend to forget, of course, is that Churchill lost the election in 1945, in part because he was hesitant to bring soldiers home after uh, victory in Europe, but also because the Labour Party offered a new vision for what the country should become after the war. Do you have any sense yet of different visions of what Ukraine will look like after the war? Or is the country actually pretty unified on that question as well? Well, uh, uh, Francis, thanks for bringing that up, because obviously we also talk about Churchill in our analyses. Ever since February of last year, when I've been uh, talking about this and publicly engaging with policy experts, Churchill has come up. And everyone also mentions that Churchill then lost the following election. But Churchill came back after that. So I think that's the one addition to that story that we failed to talk about also, that, yeah, he lost the election, but he came back again. In terms of new visions, I still believe today that the vision of an Ukraine that is focused on civic identity, civic patriotism, attachment to the state is one that is held by the broad majority of Ukrainian citizens and the one that will work, that will be most successful electorally for any candidate. Whether candidates want to challenge that, and this is something, again, we discussed multiple times, whether candidates want to challenge that and focus on an ethno-nationalist type of patriotism, uh, I guess more akin to something in Poland, that is to be seen. And that would be indeed a new vision to the one that Zelensky brought in, but not a new vision 
in Ukraine. Obviously, this has been a debate and a tension throughout the last 30 plus years. In terms of other uh, new visions, I think there will be maybe a, a there there is space for different perspectives on how reconstruction should happen. Should it should it be led by the private sector? Should it be led by foreign private companies that can both help, but of course their entry can be complicated in the Ukrainian market and economy and create can create some dependencies. There will be other questions about the welfare state and social redistribution. Uh, of course, the population is now doing what it must, but there are a lot of people not only that lost their homes, certainly lost their employment, but lost everything that they have and they, they are destitute, right? They are somehow holding on for now, but in the future, just just being able to take care of citizens in an equal manner will be quite difficult. And I think, yeah, whether this should be a neoliberal restructuring or not will likely be a debate already being had by some politicians. It's also going to be a matter of, uh, you know, the question, is it feasible to reconstruct without the private sector being a leader, uh, in fact? So I think that will be a question for any politician going forward in the future. Joe Barnes, did you have a question uh, before we go to our final thoughts? Yeah. Hi, Olga. Thank you for coming on. Really fascinating stuff. So I just wanted to ask you, how do the numbers change depending on what sort of peace plan that is muted, potentially? So there's obviously lots of talk in the West about conceding and ceding territory to Russia, whether it be in some sort of demilitarized zone or actually allowing it to become Russian. How does that affect Zelensky's numbers, if he was to sign up to something that would say, take back the entirety of Ukraine, including the Donbass, but exclude Crimea, or potentially as one of his uh, former advisors suggested that giving up 20% of Ukrainian territory is is a worthwhile venture for peace. I was wondering, do have you done any sort of deeper dives into those, into those, into the numbers of what Zelensky could expect to achieve if he doesn't deliver on his maximalist goals of reclaiming Crimea and the entirety of the Donbass? So, so there's two things that you're combining there, Joe. Um, one is attitudes towards different potential territorial peace plans and Zelensky's support. Well, we actually have a survey in the field today. So if, if I can come back and talk about we did some of these things experimentally to try to get around this a little bit better. The numbers, first of all, for the different types of territorial concessions, though there is some change in... I mean, there, there is about five, six, eight percent uh, of the survey respondents that say they would be maybe more willing to give up Crimea, but not the Donbass, for instance. It is still an overwhelming majority of the Ukrainian population that is not willing to do this, right? So it's hard to know exactly how many of them would then withdraw their support for Zelensky should such a deal be made, but it's a very large number. So we're trying to figure that out experimentally right now. We'll, we'll see what happens. Pretty much any territorial concessions at this point would would likely lead to a dr- huge drop in, of, in support and would certainly give a variety of different political opposition candidates, politicians in the future, parties, a lot of ammunition, right? 
and who would be, there would be a lot of blaming and blame attribution politics that would take place. It is not something that the, and we're talking about 70 plus percent, if not 80 plus percent of the Ukrainian population would support, even, even, even Crimea, as, as people say. So that's, that's one thing. Also, who are the folks that vote, right? Some of the folks that might be willing to concede some territories would then perhaps not be the people necessarily voting in a national election should that territory be conceded. And therefore, that support drop would be even larger. One of the things we have to remember in the polls that we are conducting, and we're very cautious in how we report our findings, there is such a large number of different types of constituencies that are not fully available to be included in the survey. That is the military population, right? Men in the military make up a very large portion now of the population, but a much smaller, if at all, present in surveys because they shouldn't be filling out surveys, certainly when they're at the front or engaged and enlisted, right? Then there are obviously mostly around middle-aged women with children who are abroad. They have actually, from what we know of surveys conducted amongst Ukrainians abroad, a really hardcore, entrenched vision of not giving up any territory, right? So these populations would then return to the voting equation and to our surveys in a different manner. So, And these, I think, would be even more entrenched in not giving up territory as a position. And then can I just ask one more on, because you, you speak a lot about enlisted men and military men. I was, when, I, when I was last in Kyiv, I was speaking to a, a guy, a soldier who had fought on various front lines. And, and he actually mentioned there would be a potential future disparity between those who served in, to say, defend against the full-scale invasion and those who opted not to serve. Do you, do you think a future, whether it be Zelensky or someone else, a future Ukrainian leader will have to take in and potentially fight against single-issue politicians who are really fighting for veterans' rights and basically creating maybe even a a two-class system in such where veterans are given sort of preferential treatment over people who opted not to serve uh, in the military? Well, I think in terms of opting not to serve, this is a a, a minuscule um, number. There are obviously individuals that can't serve for a variety of reasons, or the military has decided that they shouldn't be serving for a variety of reasons. Uh, but in terms of opting not to serve, is that's a very small um, proportion of the male population. Um, it, certainly right now, veteran rights are going to be one of the top of the agenda items. This is something that there is fairly solid agreement across the political spectrum on. It's how this is more used, I think, rhetorically in political campaigns is to be seen. I think it's already being used by some opposition politicians. It, specifically, if you if you want to follow some of the, the like Poroshenko and, and, and a few others, Instagram posts focusing on the military, the language of our boys, our men, our military, including statements that the state isn't taking care of them enough, that they aren't being provided with the tools that they need, and so on and so forth. That is already a discourse that is out there. How that is used to then, during an election campaign or during various policy debates, that is to be seen. It would be really unfortunate if, if, if any politician 
that wants to see a united, strong, democratic Ukraine in the future, and certainly a peace, a Ukraine that lives in peace and doesn't have a threat from Russia to use any kind of these divisive tactics, because that only would open up Ukraine to weakness, really to attacks from any possible hostile neighbors or internal politicians that might want to sow polarization and and discontent amongst the citizenry. Just very briefly, Olga, one final one from me. Is there much unity or disparity between ages in your polling? So, for example, do older people argue for this maximalist interpretation of victory as much as younger people? Or because they remember the past times, are they more or less likely to be in support of that? Francis, it's a really funny time to study uh, public opinion, obviously, in Ukraine, just because the population shifts have been so great. So again, I have to give that because I am that nerd by numbers. I have to give that caveat that a lot of the younger people are, again, especially younger males are in the army and younger women may actually have gone abroad also, right? But and older people tended to actually stay put in their villages, let alone in, in Ukraine. So that's an important element, right? And because there is that population displacement movement and engagement in the military that does shift how how these age groups are being captured always in surveys you have more older people right because more older people older people are more willing to pick up the phone in the middle of the day and sit through a survey and that that we have different ways that we use weights and different analytical tools to get around that but certainly with the population shifts now we have to be very weary that being said when we pull on these things, when it comes to the peace deal, when it comes to shockingly support for politicians, when it comes to a variety of these key policy issues that we know are important to Ukraine, there is quite a lot of stability along different age groups. And that's really fascinating, quite frankly. There are some other differences that come out. So socioeconomic differences, family financial situation has been over the last few decades and is today an important predictor of some policy differences. Uh, You can understand that people that are more vulnerable financially might be calculating differently amongst certain in terms of certain policies. Uh, and another element of, of course, that that it remains important. Education remains important, but really, this maybe rural-urban divide—the experience of uh, war—is different in these different contexts. And of course, those who live on the front lines, those who lived under occupation, and those who live uh, in places that are further away from the front line, but nonetheless still being bombed regularly, right? So there is that difference of actual experienced war by citizens, and that might drive differences in how people approach this question. Well, thank you so much, Olga, for all of your time today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Can I go to Francis and Joe first for your final thoughts? Joe Barnes, why don't you go first? Okay, so I wanted to, what we 55 years on, actually draw some parallels on the anniversary of the 1968 Prague Spring when the uh, Soviet Union essentially invaded the Czechoslovakia to quash these sort of liberalising reforms and draw parallels with that event and the invasion of Ukraine. We often hear a lot of rhetoric around, uh, and it it exists exists having travelled in America and 
other places on in Western Europe, people still think that Putin launched the full-scale invasion because of this expansion of NATO on his borders. He it was a NATO was the problem. But actually, if you if you sort of look at this over the years, Ukraine has been given sort of various promises, whether it be join NATO, the EU, or or whatever, or even just to move closer to these Western organisations in exchange for with a quid pro quo essentially that Kiev carries out democratic, judicial, anti-corruption reforms, reforms that move move it further away from sort of the the, the world that Moscow sees. And so in 2008, Ukraine was promised that it would become a member of NATO one day, but in exchange, again, a quid pro quo for reforms. And as we got closer to that February 23rd date, you could see in Ukraine that these reforms are actually being carried out. So now I'm posing the question, did Putin, a man who was made who he is by the Soviet Union, move on Ukraine because he saw Ukraine fulfilling these preconditions from 2008 and various reforms to build closer ties with the European Union in terms of trade and stuff. So much like the Soviet Union did when trying to liberalise or quash these liberalisation reforms in the Czechoslovakia, did Putin start to get worried that the conditions were being met? And, and that did he move because he feared that there was a definitive wedge being driven between Kyiv and Moscow and a, an actual trage- trajectory where Ukraine was moving more towards the Western, the real European way of, of life over how Russia sees it, or, well, more, more down to how Vladimir Putin sees it, and I, I, I think so. Thank you very much, Joe Barnes. Uh, Francis Turnley. Thanks, David. Mine slots in with Joe's quite nicely, actually. So I often talk about how we may have to wait years to understand what's really happened in the political sphere, those summits, one-on-ones and briefing notes that can shape history, but which remain a mystery to us until they blow the dust off the filing cabinets. Well, an interesting snippet today from the early years of Putin. Documents released by the National Archives here in Britain show that Ukraine's then president pleaded in 2002 with Tony Blair to support Ukraine joining the European Union. But the British ambassador to Kyiv suggested the UK saw Ukraine as, quote, not really European. So in a memo to Tony Blair from Roger Little, his special advisor on European affairs, ahead of a meeting between Tony Blair and Putin, Mr Little summarises talks he had with the Ukrainian team, saying... The Ukrainians are depressed that most of Europe and the new US administration is running them down. In their view, and just listen to this, we have too rosy a view of Putin, who, according to them, is a clever, presentable power politician, but no democratic hero. And we rubbish Ukraine. The documents also reveal that Tony Blair was greatly encouraged by the Russian leader's cooperation with NATO after 9-11. I think that's the key to understanding this perspective here during those years. Of course, the shock of 9-11 really did change the geopolitical map. And Putin was one of the quick, quickest out of the blocks to try and offer support to the West. I mentioned this revelation for two reasons. One, to underline the state of play as it was at the turn of the millennium. And two, the consistency of the warnings and appeals from Democrats in Ukraine who sought a different future than one offered by Russia. One often hears 
that this is a new phenomenon, as Joe was saying, but these documents reveal it's not true. This is not something that's only happened in the past decade or so, as profound as reforms have been. This has been a long-term project for many democratic Ukrainians. Now, as for the state of play as it was, it will be a debate for historians as to whether Putin changed from his softer stance or whether his own view shifted the longer he was in power. My own perspective is that he operates in the space he's permitted to operate in. In the early 2000s, he needed to work with the West to shore up his position. But as the years have gone on, that's no longer held true. So in that sense, Tony Blair may be right and wrong, right at the time in the sense that Putin was seeking to work more closely with the West, but wrong in his assumption that this was something heartfelt in the Russian leader. Instead, one could argue it was merely a measure of Putin's political reality, one that he sought to free himself from and which, once he'd done so, used to attack the West and ultimately, corrupted by years of dictatorial power, attack a sovereign nation on Russia's border. So historians get very excited when they see these kind of documents, David, and I hope in a small way this reveals why. Even a single sentence can reveal a whole worldview. Thank you very much, Francis and Joe. Olga, as our guest, would you like the very final word? Thank you so much, David. And, and, and Joe and Francis, if I may, I think both of these analytical perspectives are correct. And actually, we address both in our book, The Zelensky Effect, that we wrote with Henry Hale. In fact, we do talk about how even Kuchma, who was perceived to be more pro-Russian at the time, was actually the one who initiated initial steps towards Ukraine's EU accession. That these were not, in fact, things that started happening after the Orange Revolution in 2004, after the Evromaidan in 2014, or Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014 and onwards. Uh, And... So that is correct, that there's a longer here story. And certainly those of us who were in Kiev and were working in different institutions or in the diplomatic sector, I myself was an intern at the World Bank in uh, 2001, you would hear these sorts of conversations about Ukraine not being quite European enough or not being quite ready to join, you know, it's, it's, it's more important European friends at the table was something people often talked about. Right. And it comes from two things, a misunderstanding of who Putin was and is and continues to be, but also a misunderstanding of Ukraine and even its uh, past leaders. Uh, But certainly, I think Joe is right on the money here. In that last decade, a lot of reforms have happened under Poroshenko and under Zelensky. But Zelensky's continuation of Poroshenko's reform doubling down on those reforms and expanding them, doing other things around getting rid of deputy immunity, land laws being changed and so on, that was going a little bit further because all of a sudden, even the Russian speakers from the East were on board with that pro-European, liberalizing, democratizing mission in Ukraine. And then Ukraine became internally united and really quite dangerous to being manip- to to Russia no longer being able to manipulate Ukraine in the same way as in the past. Thank you Joe, Francis and Olga. Yesterday I spoke to the Telegraph's Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva as part of our week-long series of exclusive reports from the Telegraph on the abduction of thousands of Ukrainian children by the Russian Federation during the full-scale invasion. 
We spoke about Natalia's article in today's paper. Listeners can find it in the show notes for this episode. We talked about a key member of the Russian elite close to Putin, Russia's smiley ombudswoman for children's rights, Maria Novova-Belova. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you so much for your time, Natalia. Can we start with a very simple question? Who is Maria Lvova-Belova? Sure. First off, Maria Lvova-Belova is the second person who is on the International Criminal Court's arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. So far, there have been only two people in Russia who have been issued an arrest warrant for suspected war crimes in Ukraine. And we're not talking about generals or politicians. We're talking about this woman who is Russia's ombudswoman for children's rights, actually, and whose job is ostensibly to protect children. Instead of that, she is being wanted by the International Criminal Court for essentially leading the program of forced deportations of Ukrainian kids to Russia. Could you give us a sense of her activities during the full-scale invasion? What is what has she been doing that's brought her to the attention of the ICC? Sure. I mean, she was appointed ombudsperson for children's rights just a year or six months before the war started. And before that, she was a fairly ordinary Russian official. There was nothing uh, striking about her. But in the recent months, she did emerge as one of the most enthusiastic faces of the Russian war. As um, some of our listeners might know, a lot of Russian officials have not been enthusiastic about the war. They may have been towing the line, complying with Vladimir Putin's order orders, but you know, anyone from the mayor of Moscow to the Russian prime minister, they have not been publicly cheerleading the war. They have, have not been you know, touring frontline locations and talking about what good Russia does in the occupied territories. Unlike Lvova Bilova, who took upon herself the task, as she described it, of saving Ukrainian kids. So it was basically thanks to her, if I may put it this way, that thousands of children from Ukraine ended up in Russia. It started with her own small-scale missions to the occupied areas, to the areas close to the front line. She and her officials were essentially taking out groups of Ukrainian children to into Russian mainland to put them into recreation camps and resorts as a temporary measure. When the war just started, when the invasion when it was it in its um, initial months, but by the time by last summer, essentially, we started seeing her spearheading the efforts to actually find. Um, permanent accommodation and permanent situation for those children. So she has prided herself on finding new families for those children. In most of the cases, she claimed that the children who were taken away from Ukraine were orphans. Their parents were either dead, nowhere to be found, or generally didn't want them. So she portrayed it as her own mission to save the children, to find them new homes. And uh, she personally... I mean, she she sort of like front frontlined several operations to put children into foster care. She would be doing it in front of cameras, like literally handing a child to a family who was about to take them into foster care. And she herself, as she told Vladimir Putin at a public meeting last year, actually earlier this year, she herself has um, adopted a child from Mariupol as she called it. She originally called it adoption. Later, she backtracked and said that the child was in her foster care. 
but yeah, this is this is quite it's quite an extraordinary character, and it took me a while to to figure out what what she's up to, where she's coming from, and and how that how that came to be. Let's talk about the the child she, as you said, initially adopted, then backtracked. He's called Philip Golovnia. Can you tell us a bit about him and his story? And I, I think it might be interesting to talk about the, the the sort of the Russian narrative of what happened to him, and then compare that with actually, you know, where are the holes in that? Yeah. Well, my interest in that story basically started with a Lvova Belova appearance with Vladimir Putin in February of this year. It was around the time of the first anniversary of the invasion. And I mean, there have been so many blood churning, stunning situations and, 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 and statements during the past 12 months. But this one really stood out for me. So she was meeting Vladimir Putin about one year into the invasion. And she told him, and this is not a direct quote, but I think I'm quoting very close to the original. She said, and thank to, thanks to you, Vladimir Vladimirovich, I got a child from Mariupol. So the story starts with her being a mother of uh, five children, five biological children, four children she adopted. And as the story goes, she was involved into moving a group of children from Mariupol to safety, as she described it. And a group of those children ended up in a recreation camp outside Moscow. Now, there's a there's quite an extraordinary documentary put out by a Russian by a conservative Russian TV channel that interviewed both her and the teenage boy that she took into her care, describing how, how they, they met. Obviously, that story should be taken with a great pinch of salt. We're also talking about the minor. We're talking about someone who has legal guardians and who has foster families. We don't know if he's under any pressure or, again, if, if he's been under the influence of something. So according to this boy and the interview he gave, he was living in Mariupol with his um, foster parents, foster mom and dad. He was hiding in a basement from constant bombardment. Um, it's actually a funny thing to mention that when he talks about the Mariupol and all of the horrors that were happening there, that I guess the whole world is familiar with right now, he was talking about Russian bombing, and he was talking about something something like Ukrainian troops entering Mariupol and um, attacking civilians, which obviously uh, has nothing to do with reality because the city was under Ukrainian control. The Ukrainian troops were there. They were defending the city against Russian attacks. So this, this, there's no way this could be true. So that was part of his interview. He was already presenting the... Uh, this very distorted picture of reality. So he was telling the Russian interviewer he was in Mariupol, hiding from bombing. And at some point, he apparently, as he describes it, he went to his home. Somehow his foster parents were at home and not in the bomb shelter. And he asked to stay with them. And as he says, as Philip says, his guardian told him, quote, what are you doing here? Go back to where you came from. And that's how he tells the story of being kicked out of his home. And this is the story that allowed Lvova Belova to portray, portray herself as a savior and say that, well, this kid was kicked out of his home. I have no way 
of adopting him of, of uh, I had I had to help him in, in, in some in some way and now I've tried to find the boys guardians because obviously when when Belova first spoke about adopting Philip Golovnya she didn't mention that he had parents that he had a biological father or he had foster parents apparently his mother died of cancer his biological father is not in the picture but apparently he's there I left messages. I tried to contact the foster parents who apparently are still in Mariupol. They didn't want to talk to me. But I was able to speak to friends and family of Philippe who are familiar with um, the family. His stepdad's brother told me that he doesn't believe Vova Belova's stories. He says they were all in Mariupol when he was captured. And as he put it, the boy was simply forcibly taken away like many children. He doesn't believe that his brother would willingly give the boy give it the boy away. And the friend of the boy's stepmother also spoke to me saying that she, she knew her for a very long time, they've been friends for a very long time, and she just doesn't she just doesn't believe how Irina, the stepmother of the boy, would just kick him out. What makes the story complicated is that the foster parents are apparently still in Mariupol, and Mariupol is under Russian control. As we know from many stories about civilians captured on the occupied territories, it's dangerous or even deadly to speak out about Russian atrocities, to you know, speak up for yourself and for your rights. So to me, it's not surprising that we haven't heard from the parents. I, I initially found it strange that those family members and friends who all are either abroad or in Ukraine, they told me they did not maintain regular contacts with the boys' guardians and they couldn't contact them or provide their contacts. This may, may sound really strange, but it's actually consistent from the reporting that I've done in the past where... People living on both sides of the front line, doesn't matter if their political views or not, as soon as they end up on different sides of the front line, that communication often is cut because it could be very dangerous for either either sides to speak to the other. So it's, it's not surprising that we're not hearing from the boys, from the boys' um, real family. But yeah, this is this is a really big mystery. So because basically what we have here, we have Lvova Belova's account and we have a story of this teenage boy who got a new family and who has been telling Russian TV how lucky he is to, to end up in Russia in a loving family. One aspect of her personal life, which is quite interesting, is her, well, you talk about it in, in the piece, her over-religiosity and piousness. You know, her husband is an engineer, termed orthodox priest you link that back to a sort of increasing demonstrative piety in the sort of russian elites could you talk a, a little bit about that where does that come from and how does it fit into putin's vision of his russia sure if we go back 10 years ago or so we didn't see any of a religious bent in the russian state yes head of the state the prime minister would be there for the easter service you know crossing themselves in front of cameras that that's fine but when Vladimir Putin came back to power in 2012, one of the first visible steps that we saw in his third term in office was a distinct move towards religiosity, towards supporting conservative communities, uh, traditional family values as he saw it. And if you look at his appointees in this uh, term, in his third term in office, one of them was Anastasi, uh, sorry, Anna Kuznetsova, who was... <clears throat> Russia's one-time ombudswoman for children's rights, Lvova, the lover's predecessor. 
And I spoke, so they both hail from the same town east of Moscow. And I spoke to uh, a an NGO worker who knew both of the women and who, who actually has known them for, for many years since they were both in their 20s. And he could see how the state's, the state's interest to religion and pivot towards Orthodox Christianity made Anna Kuznetsova and later a friend Lvova Belova um, how, how it turned them into, um, as he put it, a spin doctor's dream. They were married, young married women with, with children, both married to priests, were their Christianity on the sleeve. So in, in, in fact, they were a picture of what Vladimir Putin thought he wanted to build when at the end of the 2000s, he realized that sort of the liberal intelligence and the progressive classes were not with him. He decided to pivot towards more conservative circles who were not numerous at all. And people like Lvova Belova, I mean, I don't want to talk about a person's private religious views at the point, but she and her predecessor fit perfectly into that, into that pattern and their um, religious views and you know, demonstrative piety very much fits with how Putin wanted to see Russia, how he wanted to see individual families. So yeah, she was, of course, a poster child for that. For that. The charity worker you reference, Oleg uh, Sharpkov, there's a quote from him in your piece, which is really quite chilling. He says, talking about Maria Lvova-Belova, she used to be someone who genuinely wanted to help others. Then apparently something clicks in your head. And before you know it, you turn into a little monster. What do you think he meant by that? And what, yeah, what's your take on that and what, what he told you there? Yeah, I mean, he was telling me about spending a lot of, of times with uh, both her and her friends, Anna Kuznetsova, in the charity in the charity community and they were all involved in helping kids with disabilities and helping the elderly and he could see how she gradually was co-opted by the state how she started you know rubbing shoulders with the governor talk lo- top local officials how she started getting uh, funding from from the state from the state that many ngos tried to steer clear from because they thought that there might be compromises that they will have to take if they were to agree to take in significant uh, government funds. So, I mean, it's quite, it's quite stunning to, to know someone who ends up on a warrant list for crimes against humanity, for like child trafficking. So I, I asked Oleg about what, what he thought of her, what he remembered about her. And he described her and Anna Kuznetsova as, quote, just ordinary girls who were around, who wanted to help, before they became demonstratively pious and started taken government money. So when I when I asked him about the arrest warrant and the fact that one of his former friends is now uh, wanted for, for war crimes, what he told me that it, it, it started very innocuously. It started with a genuine help to, to help children. Before she knew it, she was co-opted and apparently she liked all the attention and power that, 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 that she felt. And the way he sees it is that she's probably quite genuine in thinking that she helps children. And, you know, I, we've been talking about it a lot on, on this podcast about whether Russian officials really believe that they are liberating Ukraine and, and saving Ukrainian people. So, yes, I mean, I, I also asked him about the boy that she adopted, that she thanked Vladimir Putin for. And that was his reaction, that one day you're out there helping disabled people, and next moment you, young, she was described, charming, pretty young woman, turning to a little monster. I mean, how would, what do you think your story shows us about Putin's regime and the people that are close to him? 
Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I guess, um, I mean, it's been a while since the International Criminal Court has had an investigation that would be uh, so so big and and t- touching so so many lives. And if if you go back to Rwanda, if you go back to genocide in Rwanda, what thirty years ago? Also, from my perspective and from perspective of many people in Europe, and I, I really hate to to be presumptuous. This was a place that was far away. We didn't know those people. We didn't know too much about this country. I mean, R- Russia is a European country. It's very close to everyone. And um, what happens in, what, what's been happening in, in Ukraine these past 17 months is inconceivable. We could never think that a Russian official, all of those um, smart, beautifully dressed people um, who hang around with Western celebrities, who go on holidays in Italy, that they would go and engage into war crime, that they would behave as barbarians. With that story, I just wanted to show that one of the faces of the Russian war crime is this completely ordinary woman who followed the government's lead, who did it maybe without thinking, maybe while refusing to think. And uh, before you know it, yes, you turn into a little monster and you end up on a wanted list. Natalia Vasileva, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.